This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. engineering podcast i'm your co-host dan blewett on today's episode we're gonna talk about air france taking a, a big delivery of a220s from airbus um that'll come in september um some of the faa's unfortunately seemingly unsuccessful attempts to uh regulate unruly passengers still upset with masks and other issues uh we'll talk about richard branson the importance of his flight um also a potentially pretty awful take on this in the uh, media here. We'll talk about an opinion article that's just downplaying some of the advantages of, uh, of space travel. We'll also talk about autonomous flight. Is this realistic in our near future, even as far as just cargo? And lastly, in our EVTOL segment, we'll talk about Joby, JetBlue, and Signature announcing um, you know some utilization of electric and hydrogen credits, as well as some news with Hart Aerospace making some um, some big orders or getting some big orders and uh, a couple other ideas as far as uh, NASA and their partners um, in the advanced air mobility program. Um, so Alan, let's talk about Air France. So why is this um, delivery of A220s coming in September so important? Well, uh, from Airbus standpoint and the aircraft standpoint, let's look at it from the aircraft standpoint. That's a big order. Uh, the A220 is the original Bombardier C-Series, which was a fantastic airplane. From the start, it was a fantastic airplane. But the issue was that Bombardier never seemed to have the clout or the in, in the airline market, particularly the larger air, airline market like Air France, to, to get a bunch of orders for the aircraft. And it struggled to gather orders. And... The airplane hasn't changed at all. It's the label that's on it now, or it's an Airbus airplane instead of being Bombardier airplane. All this, all the infrastructure and who's building the thing is essentially the same. It's the same airplane, but Airbus has the wherewithal to sell it. So you're bringing really advanced technology in terms of composites and engines and the whole thing to reality just because Airbus got involved. And it, it, Bombardier pretty much gave the program to Airbus at the time to get it off their books. Uh, so from the from the standpoint of having better airplanes in service, A220 is, is a magnificent aircraft and will have a very long service life. It's just fascinating to watch the differences in marketing and capabilities that happen with the same engineering product, same airplane, being sold by Bombardier versus being sold by Airbus and how that changed the whole success pathway for the A220 and everybody who works on that program. Um, so it, it, I, I take, I look at that and go, wow, you know, it really does matter who your customers are, how, what your relationship with those mark when that marketplace is as you're building this fantastic product, the product didn't sell itself no matter how good it was. There was just this hesitancy in the marketplace to buy it because you were so concerned 
I think, about the viability of Bombardier. Like, were they going to be around five years from now? Uh, and, and that really hurt them in sales. For Airbus, you know it's going to be around five years from now. And you're going to be able to get parts and support and all the things you need as an airline. That's the, that's the real thrust of this, I think, is that all of a sudden, A220 is super successful. Where if you had asked that six years ago, you would say, uh-oh, we're in trouble. So moving on, the FAA is continuing to have issues um, just keeping order on aircraft uh, and new announcements seemingly each week of big fines. So here's a new one um, this past week, a $10,500 fine for a passenger who just repeatedly pulled his mask down. Um, you know, I think this was like seven times that they were told they told him to keep his mask, you know, properly fitting. Um, people are just getting in fights. They're physically assaulting uh, flight attendants. There's obviously ma mask issues. Um, Alan, do you see an end in sight to this? Do you think the fines are going to calm people down? No, it's just going to get worse. Yeah, I don't think so either. And until we lift the mask mandate on airplanes, you're just going to the fights are going to get more frequent and more violent. And at some point. The flight attendants union and the pilots union, for that matter, are going to have to just say, you know what, if I have someone who's not going to obey this rule, I am not getting into a fight with them on the airplane and I'm not going to get punched, <laughs> which is what's happening right now. I'm not, I'm not getting into a, a physical altercation with the passenger who is not being compliant. I'm going to have to let it go. And at, at that point, I, I think the, the the federal government needs to take a really hard look at that because most of the United States is essentially maskless, except on airplanes. So if I can go into the Walmart or if I can go into my grocery store or if I can go to my local synagogue or church without a mask, then why am I needing one on an airplane, at least when nearly 70% of Americans have at least one vaccination shot. So if you're vaccinated, you really have nothing to worry about here. And I, I would hope all the flight attendants and pilots are vaccinated. That would only make sense uh, for age reasons and sickness reasons and safety reasons that they're exposed to the population all the time. It makes sense to be vaccinated. So who, who are we protecting here? And are we putting our flight attendants and pilots and the safety of the aircraft at risk and other passengers at risk because we're trying to enforce something at 40,000 feet. That doesn't make a lot of sense to me right now. Um, moving on to our, our bigger news item that we want to chat through today is Richard Branson's jaunt into space. Alan, how do you feel about this? I think it's a remarkable achievement. They've been through a lot of adversity uh, uh, with uh, the earlier version of the spacecraft, which had the accident. We lost, uh, I think, three people in that accident. I think it was two pilots and a flight engineer. Uh, and uh, they had to regroup. You know, that, that's a big, big setback uh, personally and technically. And uh, I think Richard Branson's group, decided they're going to stick with it, and he kept investing money into it and bringing it to reality. Um, in the meantime, other technologies have caught up, right? Uh, uh, SpaceX has gotten pretty far. Jeff Bezos's space efforts have gotten pretty far in the last year or so. Uh, so the Virgin Galactic effort may seem not as consequential as some of the things that SpaceX is doing. But in, in, in terms of engineering and and 
knowledge. I think there's a lot to be learned from what Virgin Galactic has gone through and the, the technology they're bringing to bear here and all the, all the things that they've learned and, and can grow that as, as a business. I, it's still questionable whether how that would be a viable business, Dan, but in, in terms of just pushing forward uh, the technology and the science and the engineering behind it, I think they've done a fabulous job of that and they should be commended for that. Now there's a article on CNN opinion um, by writer Holly Thomas, who's a columnist, Richard Branson's disappointing space jaunt. And the article is essentially saying that this was a disappointment and a waste of time and bad for the planet because of the CO2 footprint that it pumped out, um, you know, X amount of uh, carbon dioxide for the flight. And basically the whole argument is about that. That's a straw man. Basically just that, you know, uh, she's tying it to climate change, um, which this has, you know, no impact on what's been happening on the, on the planet, not to mention, um, a short, relatively one-off, uh, you know, space flight. Um, and then just sort of ties all together at the end with, um, you know, just like a, a blow towards billionaires just saying, yeah, like they're not concerned about anyone else on the planet. Um, use a, uh, a quote from a NASA astronaut sort of drive that point home that just billionaires being selfish and killing the planet is essentially the overall gist of this argument. Now, why, why do you feel like space travel is important? Uh, this article is, is nonsense, but why, why is this important? And why is this, why is there so much billionaire hate? And why do people just look for something to complain about when it comes to achievements like this? Well, let's just step back for a second. Uh, so the author is making a contention that there's uh, CO2 and CO2 is bad for the planet. Therefore, Richard Branson's doing bad things. That's sort of the, the logic of this. And then let's just, just concede that. Sure. Right. We are. The rocket does produce CO2 and emissions. And yes, those contribute to greenhouse gases. And yes, uh, the planet will warm slightly. OK. Uh, but what other things has it done? I, I think it's hard to really determine those up front because you're not intimately involved with what's happening on the engineering side, like what engineering advancements to make that, that, that can be used elsewhere in the world. Uh, Elon Musk is, is saying that they want to establish life on another planet because we're going to need to do that in the next hundred years-ish, whatever that is. Uh, if that is true, then they're using their own money and their own investment to further life. And I think Branson it would fit into that category too. He's very, he seems like a very environmentally conscious person. It isn't like he has ignored the environmental impact of lighting off a rocket. But he also realizes that unless you do those things, you can't advance society in ways that other people can't even conceive of. And if if we're uh, throwing down this gauntlet, and I've seen this in a couple places now, if we're throwing down the gauntlet, Dan, of saying we can no longer uh, be in space because of the CO2 emissions, then what are we missing out on? What, what life-altering thing, like having a second planet to live on, are we going to eliminate? 
do you see that the connection between you know pushing the envelope a little bit and even on a really small scale well and the overall tone is besides uh this main climate change argument which is nonsense it's such a small one-off thing like there's more again co2 being pumped into the air from i mean just like name a thing um that we're all using driving our cars every day anyway but yeah i mean charcoal grilling in the backyard for fourth of july but um yeah this idea that billionaires should spend all their money helping people who need it now that's not going to push society forward you sure there's a lot of people that need help and there's a lot of you know economic disparity but does that mean that the people with the most wealth should just give it all away and shouldn't advance technology like you said and and push the limits of what society could should do like no like that then we're never ever going forward because all these problems are seemingly unsolvable or very slowly solvable and all problems should be solved you know they should all be going essentially so if, if these two if these three aren't gonna have some sort of go at space travel and like you said the engineering and who knows where that can take us then who's going to do it? Well, that's just it. You don't know what you're missing until it's not there. And I, I think that's the hard part for uh, this argument is like, what are, what are we possibly going to do without? Uh, it isn't like uh, developing a spacecraft is done in a bubble. Uh, there's, you know, it provides hundreds, if not thousands of jobs. I'm sure that it did probably well-paying jobs. So people are making a living off this. Uh, but to say, hey, look, Everything that someone of economic status does is a negative impact to the planet, and that's the only decision point we're going to use uh, to determine their their value to society. That's not a place I want to live in, uh, because we're going to really stop progress in a sense. Uh, you know, human evolution is not a um, <laughs> linear thing. It tends to go in steps and particularly uh, major steps since the production of energy. And one of those things that we learned how to do back in the really 1900s, early 1900s is rocketry. And it has gradually gotten better and safer. And you know, the, the amount of risks that Richard Branson took in that flight are just relatively low compared to what had been in the 1960s. So things have changed. And, and I do think that as a society, we have to really try to grapple with two things simultaneously. Can we deal with environmental uh, issues? Yes. Can we deal with uh, the process of life and pushing the technology envelope? Yeah, we can do both of those things simultaneously. And we don't have to crucify one to get to the other. I think that's, that's the trouble is we... The imp implication is we have to sacrifice one or burn one down politically, uh, socially, to get to some other kind of utopia, which is ill-defined. What is that other side? What do we look like without space flight? What if there is no satellites in the sky? What does that look like? Well, pretty much television goes away. Um, any sort of entertainment goes away. Data communication goes away. The internet goes away. All those things go away because a lot of that, that happens via the sky. And that, that's that's the consequence of those things. And if we had decided to stop doing rocket launches back in the 60s, the world would be a much different place. Yeah, it's just, it's it's sad when, I mean, articles like this 
just like that opinion that can be your personal blog i don't know why cnn publishes things like that it's just like they're pandering to their to some some base of supporters that want to read that they want to read hate towards billionaires which not everything billionaires do is good right okay but you know it's like should we abolish nascar you know you have 25 cars zooming around a track burning up lots of fuel i mean that's contributed more to today's environmental problems than space travel has. Probably, yeah. Yeah, that's probably true. But NASCAR makes people happy, right? People want to go out and... and it's led to a lot of safety improvements. Yeah. It's led to a lot of safety improvements in vehicles because what happens on the racetrack eventually ends up in the cars that we drive today and the technology. Yeah, Formula One, you can make the same argument for. A lot of what we know about Formula One eventually trickles down into automotive. You can make the argument, well, maybe, maybe that it does. But you can't deny the fact that it does push the technology envelope out further and makes it cheaper for the regular person to enjoy some of the benefits of that. It does. It really does. And uh, to ignore that, and to discount it is really going to hurt the future uh, of what we could be in the in relatively short time frame. So in our engineering segment today, a uh, really interesting story out of Bloomberg about uh, this company, Reliable Robotics. This is from earlier in the spring. Uh, and just what they're doing with flying Cessnas through um, a mixture of human control or of remote control and autonomous uh, technology. So um, FedEx is, is really interested in this idea and thinking that cargo could be semi-autonomous, if not fully autonomous, sometime down in the future. Um, and, you know, using these kits from, uh, from reliable robotics to install on these Cessnas. So, um, Alan, how far off in the future do you feel like this autonomous flight, um, whether it's for cargo or otherwise, is from becoming a reality? I think it's doable today. The, the, the problem and the impediment is going to be the regulatory environment and how do you manage uh, unpiloted aircraft with cargo in the sky on the risk side and how do you manage it in the, in the, inter, inter, in the interchange between piloted passenger aircraft and these unpiloted things with freight on them using the same airports and the same airspace, how do you manage all of that simultaneously? Uh, that's the question that the FAA and NASA and a bunch of others are, are looking at. And uh, until we get across that hurdle, technology's there. Obviously, the technology's there. I mean, how many eVTOL companies are talking about autonomous people moving of uh, some sort? Uber kind of thing. And even Uber on the cars is talking about uh, driverless cars. Uh, Apple is, Google is, uh, all the automotive companies, or Tesla is obviously looking at piloted, uh, uh, non-driver vehicles, uh, autonomous vehicles. So the aircraft is right behind that. I, I don't see how it's not. It may be easier than a, than a car, uh, just because there's less things to run into. But uh, until we have a framework on the regulatory side of what that looks like and how we're going to manage it, I it's going to be on a small scale. So it, we're in this really weird situation where the technology is advancing so much faster than the, than the, than the uh, infrastructure to manage it can advance because you have this aging infrastructure of how you handle flights in the sky. How do you manage all that? Because it's sort of a people-based system right now. And 
you can put up a lot of autonomous vehicles simultaneously and really flood the skies. Uh, how, how do I how do I do that in a safe and a, and efficient manner? That's going to be the question. And I do think some of these projects where they're basically taking an old existing airframe and plugging in robotic technology to fly it is really cool. Don't you don't you think so? Like I, I'm going to take a, a standard Cessna airplane and I'm going to basically connect a robot to it to fly it. That, that seems just obvious. Yeah, I want to do that with like my toaster or my my blender or something. Just because then that just makes me a smoothie while I'm just coming awake in the morning. Um, but yeah, I mean, it also seems like a much easier problem. Like you've talked about all the certification issues and all those other things rather than building from scratch taking a large chunk of it as proven and then all right let's make let's make this thing go right so that seems like it's gonna it's gonna give this these projects legs and and they hope to get um you know these cargo flights going by the end of 2022 which is not too far away and then kind of go from there so it seems like what reliable robotics is doing is like definitely has like i said has some legs um do you see the investment side of this following suit? I, I haven't yet. Because like in the in the Joby or um, Beta technologies up in Vermont, and a couple of the different uh, eVTOL companies where they've gotten or received $500 million to upwards of a billion dollars of investment into those companies, the, the drone side of it hasn't seen that level of investment yet, which is odd and i i think the, the difference is a pilot that the pilot changes everything if you have a piloted vehicle you can get it certified by the faa and the europeans and then get to profitability at some point with the unpiloted vehicle there really isn't a lot of infrastructure there to handle that yet except maybe locally and that's where i think the investment side is going to be very wary of of putting money where the FAA is not comfortable because that's going to be the stopping point for all the projects is one crash of a, of a remotely piloted vehicle uh, into the wrong metropolitan area. is going to be a huge setback and investment wise, you're just going to lose all your investment. That's what will happen. Yeah. That's an interesting point. Yeah. And they have some investment money they've raised. I think it was 30 million. And, um, but that you know pales in comparison to the, like you said the half a billion that some of these companies are are pulling in. Now they probably don't need as much money because again they're not developing a whole aircraft, right? They're not starting from from scratch. And all that's true. But think of the the upside potential, right? So the, let's let's play the economics out of this. You can imagine how much cargo Amazon moves in a day, or FedEx moves in a day, right? And that's all done. Amazon has created their own cargo airline service they, they're 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 labeling airplanes with amazon on the side of them and they got their own pilot network and they got this sort of infrastructure for uh, where amazon is going to sort of compete with fedex on a sense in terms of the cargo market you think about how much product moves daily hundreds of millions of dollars gotta be tens of millions of dollars a day at least and you think about uh, how much it's costing in fuel and pilots and all this stuff to maintain those aircraft. It's, an, it's a huge expense. So coming in with a drone would make a lot of sense. You'd save a ton of money. So the, the upside from an Amazon point of view or from a FedEx point of view would be huge in terms of cost savings and profitability. But if you're only seeing $30 million kind of investments, that tells you that the upside 
is not huge, where if you're investing 500 million in a project, you need to make 2.5 billion out of that, right? You got to get a factor of five numbers. So if you, if you take your investment, what you see is your investment into that project, you got to multiply a factor of five or 10, on what the return of investment is going to be. And you say, well, it's a much smaller market. It doesn't correlate to the amount of product that's flying, moving around today via air. So something is off and, and there's, there's a risk that's out there that hasn't been well-defined. So moving on to our EVTOL and electric segment, um, NASA has added 14 new partners, which is 13 companies and one university onto their air, uh, advanced air mobility project that's, you know, helping to research how we can, you know, figure out this air taxi situation in the U.S. airspace. Um, so a lot of the usual suspects are on here as well as, you know, reliable robotics, which we, we just mentioned, um, WISC, Joby, um, many of these big companies. Um, Alan, I mean, what are these like panels or whatever you would call this? How do they sort of work? I mean, are all the CEOs in a room? I mean, how do these partners all sort of interact to, to get things done? Typically not, uh, management. I mean, obviously management is keeping taps uh, on what's happening in these in these uh, meetings. Same thing as this in a lot of in industry consortium groups. Typically, it's the engineers or occasionally the business people, depending on the regulatory people the, the, that in, get in really heavily invested in the committee side, particularly with NASA. Uh, and they're trying to hash out what the framework is where they can all play. So they're trying to create that that infrastructure, that playground in which they can put investment into. So, and, and this goes back to the investment side. So until I create a stable investment platform, a place to fly, green flags, green lights to uh, do what we need to go do in terms of these airplanes or these aircraft, then the investment gets hard, right? So what you do is you, you bring in an outside group like NASA that has a lot of respect nationally, internationally, and say, okay, NASA, you're going to moderate this group and we're all going to decide how, what this landscape looks like because we're going to design it at some level. And we're going to go to the federal government and say, hey, this is our recommendations for how we make this system work. Safety-wise, cost-wise, um, people-wise, what does this look like? And th those are up puts typically in some sort of report that gets filed away in some Washington, D.C. file somewhere. Now, if they're smart and they're working hard, they're meeting with members of Congress at the same time. So if you're a Joby, for example, because you're a big player, and I'm using them because they have the financial wherewithal to, to do both. They're going to be going to these NASA things and contributing, saying, hey, we need this to be successful. Otherwise, this billion-dollar investment goes poof, and we don't want it to go poof, right? And But at the same time, uh, all my Congress people in California are going to be getting phone calls from me or have some lobbying going on saying, hey, this NASA report's very important to us. We think NASA's done a really good job with this report. We need you to make it, to encourage this to be into legislation, to let NASA or FAA, FAA really, make the FAA or the Department of Transportation take these recommendations and make them into rules that we can then have the infrastructure so that our electric aircraft can be profitable. That's a weird way to think about, you know, 
airplane airplane business because if you compare that to the Wright brothers, like, hey, let's build an airplane, it'll sell itself. True back in 1903 and 1910, not true today in 2021. It's just a lot more hurdles to jump. And so that's why, and Dan, I think you've asked really good questions about like, why are we getting a billion dollars of investment into these companies? One of the reasons why is because you got to do this, all this extra stuff. It's not only designing an airplane, you got to just design the infrastructure in which the airplane can operate in. That's where you eat up a billion, you know, a billion dollars. It's not got to land them somewhere. Yeah, right. So speaking of investment, um, some big news with uh, Heart Aerospace. So they've raised 35 million recently. They've also got a big order with United and Mesa Airlines. So United uh, is purchasing up to, um, well, so Mesa Air is a regional partner of United, but it's 200 ES-19s between the two, 100 of which looks like are going to go to um, United and then the other 100 to Mesa. Um, But the ES-19 is a 19-seater, runs on batteries, electric motors. It's not an EVTOL. Um, but the goal is that these aircraft will be delivered by 2026 and we'll have a flight, um, battery time of about 250 miles. Um, so we talked about heart airspace before, um, seems like they have a really good, interesting prototype. Um, and obviously, you know, like we just mentioned, 35 million is pretty small amount of money, relatively speaking, compared to some of these, again, like raising half a billion from some of the EVTOL companies. Um, Alan, where do you see United using these 19-seaters? That seems like a pretty small um, regional jet. I mean, even by small regional jet standards, right? Right. It is. That marketplace has existed for a long time, and it really got penetrated hard by uh, beach aircraft. Back in the 1990s, when they started producing 19-seat aircraft, Turboprops. So it was based on the on the King Air designs, uh, and the, the the last version of that I think was the 1900D, uh, which had a oval shaped cabin, so you, you can kind of stand up in the thing. And that was a very popular airplane with Mesa back then in the late 90s, early 2000s. And then that whole marketplace, the 19 passenger airplane, collapsed, really collapsed in in 2007 and 8 when the economic uh, downturn happened and the collapse of the housing market of all things, you know, everything just kind of stopped. And all of a sudden, all those airplanes got returned to beach and beach didn't know what to do with them. And they just, everybody just unloaded their airplanes around lease and they just, boom, they all came back. And so you, you, you'd fly around the country and you're like, Oh, there's another 1900 in the, in Poughkeepsie or some random airport somewhere. And you go, wow, there's a lot of 19, past seat aircraft <laughs> parked, permanently parked. And I think they eventually converted a lot of them into freighters and moved them overseas, um, South America and Africa, because uh, it's an efficient airplane. So it's odd now that because that whole 19 passenger marketplace just sort of went away, evaporated literally overnight, that now we're getting back into the 19 passenger market. And it, it, there's a regulatory reason for that uh there's 19 passengers a sweet spot regulation wise uh, just simple facts of the thing but when you the difference between flying in a turboprop airplane which is essentially what hard aerospace is going to make uh propeller driven airplane 
versus flying in a Embraer 135-145, a Bombardier, whatever, Jet is a totally different experience, right? Uh, propeller airplanes tend to be noisy and vibrate a lot, and you get this kind of bouncy thing that's happening. And 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 that size airplane, and people don't prefer it. They prefer to fly in the jets. And so it's you know how many, how well will the customers accept that aircraft? Because there are a lot of routes it could fly on. And Dan, you you know, I mean, along the East Coast, there's a ton of little routes you could fly it on. In the Midwest, there's a bajillion routes you could fly those aircraft on yeah in uh in december i'll be in uh central illinois for a, a wedding and i'll be flying from chicago to central illinois then then back again then back over to dc that's yeah 120 miles something like that right right and there's been a couple of aircrafts in that market like shorts um which had a airplane high wing airplane uh turboprop airplane in that marketplace back in the 80s uh, in early 90s, that airplane stopped also. So all those sort of 19 passenger airplanes to make the Chicago to Central Illinois, Chicago to Indiana, uh, where I was, uh, routes are have gone away. So it is fascinating that they think there's a marketplace. Like United is saying there's 100 airplanes and Mesa is saying there's 100 airplanes worth of marketplace. If there is, that's great. Uh, but you got to get over the passenger hurdle of this is a less sophisticated, more unsafe or an unsafe aircraft compared to a jet airplane. That's the consumer difference, right? Dan, you mean if let me give you an example. So if you walk to the airport, and you're you're in Washington D.C. or whatever, you're in that commuter section of the D.C. airport at Dulles there. Um, and you say, your airplane is this uh, twin-engine jet. Or you're walking out to the airplane, you say, oh, it's a propeller-driven airplane. What are your thoughts when you see what the plane is? Are you, are you thinking, if you had a choice and I could go left or right, I can take the jet on the left or the propeller on the right, which way am I going? They're both going the same place. Which one am I taking? Yeah, you want the jet. You feel like you're going back in time a little bit with propellers. Right. Yeah. That's a huge mental hurdle to get over and i don't think you can get over that by just saying it's greener does that make sense uh, there's got to be something else to it it's less expensive it's faster it doesn't it, it, it it's got some it's got wi-fi in it something <laughs> something that gets you from green wi-fi yeah extra the Wi-Fi cleans and it, it removes CO2 as it travels to your phone from the air. It cleans and disinfects, right? Idea. It's a good idea. Yeah. Uh, but you see the difference. You see how they're going to have to overcome that, and they got five years to do it. I'm not sure you can do that in five years. What is the lead up to that? What if you drop this airplane on America in five years? You think it's going to be easy? To, the the consumer is going to easily accept it. I think not, unless you have something in the interim to get the general consumer right. And there's really nothing in the middle right now. Uh, even the, the the Dash Eight, which is a, was a Bombardier proje- uh, product, or the Q400, which I've flown on numerous times. I'm an experienced flyer, and when I'm in a Q400, I think I'm 
back in the 1960s. You know, that's what it feels like. And that's not the case. I mean, that's a very safe airplane. It's a very comfortable airplane to fly in. It's got all the features, but it just doesn't feel as comfortable or as secure as those crazy jet engine airplanes. It just doesn't. So there's a lot of PR that needs to be done on top of the technology. And I think technology-wise, this is going to happen. I think just looking at the engineering staff that Hart has assembled, they got a pretty good chance of making this thing work. Uh, but they got a lot of hurdles on the PR side still. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode of the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. Be sure to subscribe here on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, wherever you listen. Thanks again for being here, and we will see you here next week on Struck. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.